this at? You don't give a $500 tip to the housekeeper! That's inappropriate! That's inexcusable! That I don't forgive! What were you thinking? What were you thinking? That's what don't she is! Don't call her the housekeeper. Don't threaten me. That's what she is. She is a housekeeper, right? People are housekeepers. You better watch it, Dignan. You don't, don't know what me. you're talking don't about right me, now. Man. Her name's Inez. And my name's Dignan, man. So what? Three friends embark on a life of crime. The only problem is that they're terrible at it. Listen as we chat about the next Nintendo console, Bill Clinton's cholesterol levels, and an envelope that's pretty obviously stuffed with cash. Then we find out if Bottle Rocket stands the test of time. James and Alan have their say Do the movies you love still hold up today? James says gladiator with the glut Alan says as a father blah blah It's the test of time James and Alan have their say Do the movies you love still hold up today? Test of time James and Alan have their say Do the movies you love still hold up today? Hello, everyone, and welcome to episode 349 of the Test of Time podcast. I'm James Brief, and joining me for the 349th time is my buddy, my pal, the director of the show, Alan Noah. Hi, that's me. How you doing, James? I'm good. I'm good. Uh, we're now uh, almost at 350 episodes. We have been doing this for... Almost six years now. Seven. Yes, almost seven years. And uh, that brings up a really interesting uh, little fact that I uh, learned about this week. What's so that? if you define a video game's generation as from the date it was released to the release date of the next console, then pretty much every Nintendo console has lasted five years and some change. The NES, SNES, Nintendo 64, the GameCube, the Wii. The Wii U was not as successful, so they released the Switch four years and 105 days after the first one. So not quite five years, but yeah, it's been basically five years for every generation of a Nintendo console. And what's fascinating is that the Switch was released six years ago on March 3rd, 2017. You know, while there is talk of a Switch 2, it's not happening anytime soon. So it's amazing how long the Switch has been, and it's probably going to be by far the longest lifespan of any Nintendo console. There was some analysis I read about the latest Nintendo Direct where... They announced uh, a bunch of games and they showed a lot of footage from the new Legend of Zelda, Tears of the Kingdom that's coming out soon. And there was something I read that said that was an amazing Nintendo Direct that also indicated why the Switch is nearing the end of its life cycle. I read that article and I don't remember like how they came to that conclusion, to be honest. So great story, Alan. But I think there is speculation that the Switch is coming to the end, it's kind of got to, right, based on this fact that, yeah, every five years there's a new system. But I don't know, the Switch is still going strong. Uh, the PS5 and the Xbox One X or whatever, those are doing good, I guess, but they're not like blowing anyone away. Switch is still selling. It's also kind of hard to imagine what the next thing will be for Nintendo because the notable thing about the Switch is that it's a home console 
and a portable console, which Brilliant. was a first for the system. And so, like, what did they do next? I mean, that's the cool thing about Nintendo is they always do something surprising that no one would have thought of. Right, and I think the reason that this generation maybe is lasting longer uh, than usual is, A, they hit it out of the park with this uh, home console and uh, you know portable console. It's just a brilliant concept. And yeah. also because of the fact that the Wii U was not as successful as they wanted, and I think a lot of people didn't know it existed, to be honest, but I think the obvious play here with their dynamite Switch is just make the Switch 2. Like, just make it more powerful and backwards compatible with all the Switch games. And I think you knock it out of the park there because people want to play the Nintendo games. But it's just not powerful enough to play some of the best uh, PS5 and, uh, and Xbox games. That's the obvious play. Yeah, but Nintendo never does the obvious play. That's their whole thing. And they're usually right. More often than not, they're correct by not doing the conventional wisdom. Did you pre-order Tears of the Kingdom? No, I don't pre-order anything. Oh, that was a mistake, James, because Tears of the Kingdom is $70. Usually the new games are $60, and there was some like grumbling about it online when they announced that. But Nintendo has their voucher program. I don't know if you've uh, heard about that, but basically you can buy two vouchers for two full price video games for $100. So usually it's like, okay, well, if they're usually 60, then you're saving 20 bucks on two games. But if one of them costs $70, then you can be saving $30 on two games. It's a good deal. That's fantastic. Actually, the way I buy Nintendo uh, games like on my Nintendo account is I buy um, discount uh, Nintendo eShop cards. So I usually buy like a $50 card for like $41. I did that too. I bought a $50 card for $45 and then I used that to buy the vouchers and then I used one of the vouchers for Tears of the Kingdom. My God, we sound like a couple of cheap Jews right now, but I saved some bucks on the video game. But Al, did you use a credit card to purchase all of that? Because then you saved another 1% to 2%. True. That is true. <laughs> um, but let's talk about Bottle Rocket. So I was thinking about what movie we should do for episode 350, and I kept coming back to Rushmore, and I just kind of felt like... You can't start with Rushmore. You got to start with Wes Anderson's first movie. And we did something similar for episodes 249 and 250 when we did uh, Reservoir Dogs and then Pulp Fiction. Pulp Fiction making more sense for episode 250. That's a bigger movie. So I figured we could uh, kind of do something similar here. And you said last week that you had never seen Bottle Rocket, right? No, I haven't seen too many Wes Anderson films, to be honest. Okay, I found, quote-unquote, Wes Anderson with Rushmore, and we'll talk about that next week. But I remember some friend in college was telling me, like, oh, if you like Rushmore, you have to go and see Bottle Rocket. And I was like, Bottle Rocket? What's that? Like, oh, that's Wes Anderson's first movie. And I'm pretty sure I went to College Town Video, that was the name of the video rental store, and I took that movie out, probably on VHS, maybe DVD, and watched it a few years after it came out. I think for a while, Bottle Rocket was this, like, movie that only 
quote unquote insiders knew about. You had to be like a film buff to even know that this movie existed because it was released in theaters for like a couple of weeks. It kind of came and went. So it was not like a well-known thing. But for anyone who hasn't seen Bottle Rocket, it's the first movie from director Wes Anderson. It starts when Anthony, played by Luke Wilson, is released from a voluntary mental hospital stay and finds his friend Dignan, played by Owen Wilson. The two recruit their neighbor Bob to commit some crimes, eventually leading them to Dignan's previous boss, Mr. Henry, played by James Caan. That robbery doesn't go the way they planned, leading to an arrest. I'm not going to ask you if this movie was a hit. I know it wasn't. It, I think, made just like a couple of bucks at the box office because it was barely in theaters. Yeah, it was barely in theaters. This film was actually a short film that Wes Anderson had made. He took it to some uh, film festival, and this is what happens with short films. You you hope to get funding for uh, a feature film. He got a $5 million budget. I was uh, surprised by that. And uh, the film, yeah, it it made about half a million in the uh, box office, about a tenth of its budget. So this was not a financial success. And interestingly, I had read that uh, Owen Wilson, this was his first feature film, when Bottle Rocket bombed, uh, he seriously considered joining the military, specifically the Marines. Right, and Owen Wilson not only starred in this movie, but he co-wrote this movie. So Owen Wilson and Wes Anderson are college buddies, just like you and me, except you and I, we started a podcast. Owen Wilson and Wes Anderson started making movies together. Um, Owen Wilson has four writing credits on his IMDb, Bottle Rocket the Short, Bottle Rocket the full-length movie that we're talking about today, Rushmore, and Royal Tenenbaums, all movies that he's worked on with Wes Anderson, which is only weird in the sense of like, Owen, you can write good movies. Why don't you, you know, write more? But for whatever reason, he he just uh, works with Wes Anderson. But I kind of forgot that he co-wrote this movie. I mean, anyone can write a screenplay. I'm not saying anyone could write a good screenplay, but if you want to get into Hollywood, you could write something. And then when you find out you're you're better at acting or directing or something, you may, you may not want to do it. I mean, look at Matt Damon. The first thing he wrote was an Oscar-winning screenplay. I think like he recently wrote a screenplay or two, but he didn't write anything for like 25 years. So, right. you know, I think he found what he wanted to do. I guess, uh, you know, Owen Wilson found he wanted to do more acting. But, you know, speaking of Owen and his brother Luke Wilson's in this film, of course, the yep. uh, the Wilson brothers and director Wes Anderson, they wound up doing you know, half a dozen films together, probably more when, when you actually count them. Bill Murray would join the uh, family uh, of sorts uh, with uh, Rushmore. The relationship that... Wes Anderson has with Bill Murray. Like, yeah, they are frequent collaborators. Bill Murray appears in most of Wes Anderson's movies now, but they met on Rushmore with Owen Wilson. They met in college. So, you know, they they go back even farther. They have a, a long history together. And to me, the thing that's kind of funny is that Owen Wilson and Luke Wilson are in this movie playing really, really good friends who are kind of like brothers, but they're not brothers. But in real life, they're brothers, and they kind of have that familial resemblance. I kind of thought uh, something similar when we watched High Fidelity, where John Cusack and Joan Cusack play really good friends. It's like, we know you're brother and sister. Why don't you just play brother and sister? It doesn't change the, the dynamic of your relationship in the movie, really. But I don't know, whatever. Not really a big deal. 
Yeah, uh, I never thought that Luke and Owen Wilson looked too similar. It's probably the blonde hair and uh, dark hair for Luke, but I just, it's enough for me to, to differentiate the two. We should also mention that their other brother, Andrew Wilson, who has not done a ton of high-profile acting, but he's also in this movie. He plays Future Man, who is Bob's older brother. Why his name is Future Man, they never really say. Um, but uh, we, we should just give credit to the third Wilson brother, too. Did you ever uh, hear of Bella Fleck and the Fleck Tones? Yeah, of course. They had a guitarist or a percussionist, this guy named Future Man. He had a guitar with all kinds of buttons all over it. He would play it like a guitar, but it was a synthesizer. So every time I heard uh, Future Man, I kept thinking of Bella Fleck. Gotcha. Um, you know, when I watch a film like this and I see actors that are in this film and none of the other uh, Wes Anderson films, like uh, the actor Robert Musgrave, he plays the character Bob, who's like the third in the trio. You know, I, I just wonder, like, why wasn't he in any other Wes Anderson film? You know, it was a little bit part. And I did notice that his other feature films have been things like uh, Idiocracy and Drillbit Taylor. So yeah. it looks like, uh, you know, perhaps he formed a relationship with uh, Owen Wilson, who's like, hey, let my buddy get a you know small role here. But uh, I wonder why he was never cast in any Wes Anderson film ever again. I don't know. I mean, he doesn't do a bad job. You know, when I first saw him, I thought that he was one of the kids in Fast Times at Ridgemont High. Mike Damone was the name of the character, if I'm remembering right, who is like kind of the the friend who is helping his buddy hook up with uh, Jennifer Jason Lee, but then he hooks up with Jennifer Jason Lee. I was like, oh, it's that kid. But, you know, 10 years later, he's not a kid anymore. He He's an adult. And it's not him. It's just a guy who kind of has a similar face, I guess. He was definitely a, a familiar face. I, I felt like yeah. I'd seen him before, but then I realized, no, I really haven't. But, you know, the, the film really does have that whole indie feel. And, and I just love it. it the, the film starts in a mental hospital where we see uh, Luke Wilson's character. He calls it a voluntary mental institution. These are places that you don't go because you're committed. You go because, you know, you volunteer to go. But these, usually they're called, uh, you know, getaways or, you know, you check in for exhaustion or something like this. And you don't call it a voluntary mental hospital. I, I thought it was funny. I was going to ask you about that because I feel like there was a spell maybe late 90s, maybe more like early 2000s when it seemed like a lot of celebrities were being quote unquote hospitalized for exhaustion, like Dave Chappelle, Eminem, Lindsay Lohan, Mariah Carey. It was like a thing that was semi common, not like, you know, all the time, every celebrity, but I feel like it's not a thing you hear about that often anymore where, you know, some A-list star has to leave a movie because of exhaustion. I would assume if it was a real thing, then it would be a real thing now. Am I implying that it's not a real thing? Maybe? I mean, the, the sister character in this movie, uh, Grace, she says to uh, Luke Wilson's character, she's like, how could you be exhausted? You've never worked a day in your life, which is pretty funny. But like, is that a real thing? Um, well, I assume celebrities are being uh, treated for mental illnesses as much or if not more than they used to be. But uh, probably it's done just more secretive. Uh, I'll tell you, when, when I was a, a medical student, there was a 
famous celebrity. They were admitted under their own name, and it was a big thing because they were saying, don't even think about accessing this person's record unless you're taking care of them. You know, we will be firing anyone who did it. Um, another story that famously, uh, when Bill Clinton got his uh, triple bypass at Columbia, there were a bunch of people that kind of just looked at his record. Oh, I want to see whatever, his cholesterol levels or something, and they were all fired. So wow. somehow they get around it today. I, I have no idea how. I mean, I'm in pediatrics, so I won't use their, their real name. But I assume they still go to these resorts, but it's just not publicized. So they don't have to say exhaustion anymore. Interesting. That seems like such a really stupid reason to get fired because you want to know Bill Clinton's cholesterol. I mean, high. It was probably high. He had a triple bypass. Um, but I love like once Dignan is talking with Anthony, that's uh, Owen and Luke Wilson's characters, respectively, Dignan has a plan for them. And it's not just like plans for the afternoon or the week. He has a 75 year plan and you see it all very neatly laid out in the notebook that felt very Wes Anderson-y where it's just like quirky and weird and you can like pause it and read it. But like 75 years? I mean, come on. That is insane. And then they they commit this robbery. And then they like go to a, it looks like a, a luncheonette in a pharmacy, which used to be a thing. I think those are pretty few and far between now. But they do like kind of a, a SWOT analysis. Do you know what a SWOT analysis is? Or no, because you're a doctor and doctors don't waste their time with that kind of stupid bullshit. I waste my time with so much stupid bullshit, but I don't know what a SWOT analysis is. <laughs> okay. It stands for strengths, weaknesses, opportunities, and threats. It's like a corporate-y thing where after you do something, a project, whatever, then you look back on what happened and what were your strengths? What were your weaknesses? What are opportunities for growth? What are your threats in the future? It's another way of saying a postmortem, but they're like doing this postmortem on this robbery that they did. And then it's like, I took these earrings. Hey, you weren't supposed to take the earrings. And then it's revealed that they robbed Anthony's house. They didn't, like, commit some random robbery. They just broke into one of their own houses. These guys are pretending to be criminals, but they're not. They're simple. They're not um, They're not master criminals. It reminds me no. almost of this scene in um, Office Space of uh, the guys that are trying to launder money. And these guys are smart guys in that film, but they're just almost so innocent that they don't know how to do crimes that they need to look up what laundering is in the dictionary. Right. When they're going over their plan, Dignan's talking about why they need Bob to be their getaway driver. And the reason that Bob is their getaway driver is because he's the only person they know with a car. But they're like, well, do you really think we're going to be chased? And then Dignan's like, no, I'm just being hypocritical. And he means hypothetical, but he says hypocritical because he just doesn't know stuff. Uh, did you see Glass Onion, by the way? I did see the glass onion. Yes, didn't that make you think of that? Yes, it does. Um, uh, actually, it made me think of uh, Michael Scott uh, from the Office, okay. who will use big words not knowing what they mean. But you're exactly right. Uh, even a better example is the uh, Edward Norton character in uh, the Glass Onion. He's one of these guys who's smart but tries to use smart words to make himself sound smarter, but he uses them incorrectly, so he sounds stupider. Right. But like they go on the lamb because they rob a bookstore and they get like a couple of hundred bucks and they think that like Johnny Law is tracking them down. 
no one gives a shit. Like they, they barely got away with anything. And then they're at this motel and Dignan is like screaming loudly. Hey, we need to go get haircuts so we can disguise our identities. The cops are going to find us. And then like they go to the barbershop and they get somewhat different haircuts. Nothing that radical. But they're like, we have to disguise our identities. He's saying that in the barbershop. Like if you're really worried about being on the lam, maybe... Don't scream about it publicly about how you are on the lam. It's all for comedy and it works. I just found it funny because Anthony is not like, Dignan, you shouldn't be yelling so loudly about it. We, the audience, have to pick up on it that that's a really stupid thing to do. Yeah, I enjoy this kind of uh, dim-witted individual. Not, not completely comic relief in that he's unaware that he's this stupid. You right. know, he's saying this actually almost trying to be intelligent. Like, uh, maybe they don't want to be, uh, you know, walking around uh, exactly how they looked uh, when they just robbed the bookstore, even though it's not that big a crime. He is over-exaggerating it. That's the correct thing to do. Not in front of a barber. Um, you right. Know? And if you're going to do the haircut, you know, you got to probably dye the hair too and make it radical and, you know, shave your head or something. It's, <laughs> it's the light version of what a real criminal would have done. Right. And it's quirky. It's like a Wes Anderson quirky sensibility. Let's talk a little bit about Anthony and Inez. So while they're at this motel, Anthony becomes obsessed with this housekeeper, Inez. She is beautiful. And their quote unquote courtship is so bizarre. I mean, speaking of quirky, like painfully awkward to watch because, you know, Inez doesn't speak much English. Anthony doesn't speak any Spanish. At one point, he sees this locket that she wears, and it's this tiny little picture, and he's holding it up to her, and is like, wow, look at how cute you were as a little girl. And just like the way it's framed of, you know, her normal size head and this tiny, tiny little picture of a locket, that in and of itself is funny. And then she's like, oh, that's not me. It's my sister. And he's like, oh, well, can I have it anyway? It's like, wait, what? <laughs> Why the hell would you ask her to take that? She's just kind of like, uh, I guess, you know, like she doesn't really know what to say to this guy, but everything about it is bizarre. And I appreciated the fact that at least in the beginning, Inez seems to understand that they're not in love. Like they're just having a good time. She's attracted to him and they're hooking up and hey, why not? But he is obsessed with her and he is like in love with her. And like her reaction to that of like, I don't know you. I'm not going to like leave my life here and go on the lam with you. That just felt real to me. You know, like in a movie, you would expect her to say, yes, of course. But she's like, no, that's stupid. I really like this character, Inez, uh, played by this actress, uh, Lumi Cavazos. It seems, looking at her filmography, she's been regularly employed, but mostly uh, looks like Spanish films. She was in Like Water for Chocolate. That was like her big movie. Yeah, she's in Like Water for Chocolate um, in 1992. That was before this. But after uh, Bottle Rocket, you know, was not a financial success, so it didn't launch her. But uh, I thought she's great. She doesn't say much in this film, but that's the point of her character. It's not much of a love story based on dialogue. And right. I think she's very good in this film. She's beautiful. She The, the sure. little that she does is very sweet. Uh, her character does develop. Her English gets a little bit better later on. Um, yeah. I was surprised I never saw her in anything again because uh, I thought she was very good in this. I have not seen Like Water for Chocolate, 
Me neither. It did make me laugh when they were like making out in the pool and they're like under the diving board. That just made me laugh of like, that's got to be the worst place in the pool to make out. Because if you come up in the water a little bit, you're going to hit your head on a pretty hard thing. Like go to any other part of the pool and make out. But it just looks good in the frame. So I understand why they did it for the movie. So Dignan gives uh, Inez an envelope. Inez doesn't know what's in it. She just takes it. It turns out that uh, Anthony had put all of the money they had stolen in that envelope. Uh, I want to ask you, why does he do that? To, to help her? Is he smart enough to actually try to get rid of the evidence money? Why does he give that money to her? I think it's because he considers it a romantic gesture. And it's not a romantic gesture to hand a woman that you're romantically interested in a envelope filled with cash, especially stolen, stolen cash. cash. Right. Uh, that is not a romantic gesture. But to Anthony, it is. He's infatuated with this woman. He doesn't know why she won't leave with him. Maybe he thinks it's because she doesn't have enough money. At no point does she say that she's like, poor or unable to pay her bills or anything like that. She's not trying to get money from him. He stupidly thinks it's a bold romantic gesture. Also, maybe subconsciously, he figures if he gets rid of all the money, then he doesn't have to do this living life on the lamb thing with Dignan anymore, and he can just go home, which is what he wants to do. I think like he understands that this is more they're pretending to be robbers than they actually are. So I think that's why. To me, I think the bigger question is, why does Dignan hand this woman an envelope from Anthony? He knows Anthony likes her. He never bothers to look in the envelope. He never bothers to wonder what's in the envelope. Then when Anthony later tells him, oh, yeah, that was all of our money, then Dignan gets really mad and, like, knocks him out. Like, wouldn't you think that? I mean, I feel like if it's a big envelope of something here, he wanted you to have this. Wouldn't that be your first thought? It's the cash. What else would it be? He's not the brightest bulb. This is very, very true. And we see that again later on in the movie when they do this big heist that he wants to do to impress Mr. Henry, played by James Caan. Again, if you're going for being inconspicuous, don't wear a giant yellow jumpsuit. That's what Dignan is wearing to do this heist. Like, that's going to only call attention to yourself. It's like a Kill Bill kind of yellow jumpsuit. Oh, absolutely. Uh, you know, I love also the fact that uh, James Caan is in this film. I feel like in the mid-90s, there was a big thing for these uh, 70s and 80s tough guys to be in indie films. Like Harvey Keitel would pop up in uh, Reservoir Dogs with, you know, mostly no names. Uh, you know, an unknown Steve Buscemi and uh, Quentin Tarantino and Harvey Keitel. And here's James Caan. Yeah, I mean, he had to be on set for this movie for... A week tops? I mean, he's not really in it all that much. He doesn't have a lot to do. Right. I mean, if the budget is $5 million, then, uh, you know, you kind of figure, will he do two days of filming for $100,000? Like, let's budget this big thing for the one, uh, you know, the one big actor we can get. Yeah, it turned out it didn't help at the box office, but uh, he's awesome in the role. In that scene at the country club where he's intimidating Future Man because Future Man is harassing Bob, he's an old guy. But he's menacing. He plays exactly a James Conn role here. He's, you know, kind of a bad guy. Right. And, like, the heist goes terribly 
because of course it will. You know, these guys are out to lunch, so that's when they can break in. And then when they come back, they're like, hey, what are you doing here? You're always away at this time. And the guy's like, not always. (laughs) Like, you kind of get the sense of like, oh, they did some research to know when they're out of the building, but maybe just like a day or two, like they didn't do that much research. You you think about a movie with super cool heist uh, planning, like Ocean's Eleven, and you know, the voiceover will tell you at 9.12 p.m. there will be a change of guards and and there will be a 30-second window between 9.14 at this one corner where you can't see anything for the cameras. And, you know, it's so precise. And you could tell these guys in Ocean's Eleven have done months of research and whereas these guys, you're right, probably looked one time when the guys change shift and go, oh, they change shift at three. I mean, sometimes it's 2.57 and, you know, sometimes actually four. You know, they, they, they did not uh, plan this. They're such bungling fools. And Dignan's all proud of themselves for doing this research. Meanwhile, while they're doing that, Anthony is making a flipbook of someone like pole vaulting. I don't know if you've ever made a flipbook, but that requires a lot of time and attention to detail. If you're making a flipbook, you're not paying attention to what the guards are doing. So clearly Anthony doesn't care. He doesn't want to be there. One of their guys like has a, a heart attack because uh, one of the guys fires a gun, not at him, but he just goes into cardiac arrest. You are not surprised that the robbery goes poorly. It's a little bit of a twist that while this robbery is going down, Mr. Henry is robbing Bob's home because Bob is a rich kid and, you know, he's got a nice house. And so they just clean him out when they know he's not going to be home. It kind of almost seems like Dignan is okay with being arrested. Like, he doesn't want Anthony to go down. He wants Anthony to go and live his life with Inez and... Honestly, Dignan should take the fall. And at the end of the movie, he's in prison and he's okay with it. He's not bitter about it. He's not angry. He's made all of these belt buckles in prison. And he's like, oh, I made one for you, Bob, and one for you, Anthony. And I made some others for Mr. Henry and those guys. I mean, I guess you could still give it to them. No hard feelings. Like, no, there should be some hard feelings with Mr. Henry. But Dignan's okay with it. And There's one last joke at the end where he's like, okay, this is where we're going to do the escape. You guys are going to create a distraction. Bob, you're going to be my human shield. Let's go. We have to go right now. And Bob and Anthony are like, oh my God, is he serious? And then he's like, nah, come on. You thought I was serious? Like, hey, remember you were the guy who was in the mental hospital? Ha ha ha. And like Dignan's in jail, which, you know, you would consider to be a bad thing most of the time, but he's okay with it. Like, he kind of got what he wanted. He wanted to be a robber, and now he's in jail for robbery. So that kind of makes him an official robber, you know? Yeah, it gives me the idea that life is not going to go well for Dignan, but uh, it, it might go okay for Anthony. It might. Yeah, it, it's implied that uh, Anthony and Inez are going to be okay. Bob and his brother are patching up their relationship because his brother was a huge jerk to him for 90% of the movie. But now that they've been robbed, they're bonding again, which is a weird thing to bring them together, but whatever. So it's fair to say that, you know, maybe Dignan doesn't have a wonderful life ahead of him, but he's happy. He's not cynical about the future. He's happy. And that kind of makes it a weird, quirky, air quotes, happy ending for him. But because we're at the end of the movie, James, let me ask you, do you think that Bottle Rocket stands the test of time? 
Like I said in the beginning, I haven't seen many Wes Anderson films, but I have seen a few of them. And uh, I can tell that he's gotten better as a director. There's definitely a rough around the edges, uh, the indie feel of this film. The film is is very quirky. It's very Wes Anderson quirky. And I think there's a reason why I haven't seen too many of, of his films. Um, the quirkiness, it works for me, but it's not the kind of thing that I go out and seek. So I'll say that this film was the primordial Wes Anderson because you kind of see where he goes from here. But um, I'll say, yeah, the, the film stands up as a Wes Anderson film. Is it for everyone? No. Um, this film is not for everyone, but neither are Wes Anderson films. I mean, it's a taste for certain people, and I liked it. I'm looking forward to seeing Rushmore next week. I haven't seen that in years. So what do you think, Al? Does uh, Bottle Rocket stand the test of time? I have to say, James, I agree with, like, everything you're saying. And I did really enjoy watching Bottle Rocket. I also did kind of consider it, though, as like an appetizer for Rushmore. Like, honestly, like as I finished this movie, I was like, oh, man, I can't wait to see what he does next with Rushmore. And I've seen Rushmore many more times than I've seen Bottle Rocket. But then I was actually looking uh, today, and I think it was in a review by Roger Ebert, and he kind of said something very similar at the time when Bottle Rocket came out of like, this is a good movie. I want to see what Wes Anderson and Owen Wilson can come up with next. And that is, in fact, Rushmore. So even a professional film critic like Roger Ebert had that sense. I think that Bottle Rocket on its own is a really enjoyable movie. The plot is pretty thin when you think about it, but it's not about that. It's about the characters and this world that Wes Anderson has created, and it is just a fun place to inhabit. It's fun to watch these characters. It's fun to spend time with them. And there are these things in this movie that would become Wes Anderson signatures. And if you see this movie when it first came out, you don't realize that at the time. But these camera movements, he uses a lot of handheld and the way he frames certain things. The soundtrack for this movie is pretty impressive for a movie with barely any budget. He licenses one Rolling Stone song, 2000 Man, which is great. Over and Done With by The Proclaimers, a great song from a band that a lot of people consider a one-hit wonder. You know, there's a lot of great stuff in here that I do think makes this movie enjoyable. And I think completely on its own, yes, it stands the test of time. But also, it does really make me even more excited to see Rushmore next week. Also, just one other note about the movie and the style and the sensibility and everything— Robert Yaoman, I hope I'm pronouncing that right, he was a cinematographer on this movie, Bottle Rocket, and he has been the cinematographer on all of Wes Anderson's live-action movies. So that was another fruitful relationship that has carried on throughout the years, and you just kind of see it. These two gel together. Who knows which thing is whose idea, but these guys get along, they have a very similar sensibility, and it works. And then just one other thing that you will appreciate, James Brief. You know what else uh, Robert Yeoman was the um, cinematographer on? A movie that you and I talked about many, many years ago on the podcast. It's not cool as ice because that was the Oscar winning uh, cinematographer for all Spielberg's films. Right. It was The Wizard. 
uh, starring Fred Savage. That was earlier in his career. I don't really remember the cinematography in The Wizard, but whatever. The important thing is, it's the same guy. I just figured you would appreciate that. But that's going to do it for us this week. Next week, it's episode 350. And we get to talk about Rushmore. I am really, really, really excited to watch this movie. Is this one that you've seen, James? I actually saw it in the theaters. Oh, cool. But I haven't seen it in years, 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 years. All right. Well, I'm looking forward to watching that movie very much because it's our 350th episode spectacular. It's the perfect opportunity to write us a review on Apple Podcasts and say something nice about the show. And uh, I'll read it on air. I love hearing these kinds of things. We love hearing from you there and also on social media at Test of Time Pod on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Write to us, say hello, let us know your thoughts on Wes Anderson in general, on Bottle Rocket specifically, and we will see you next week for episode 350. Bye.